Okay, so today I'm joined by Darcy Logan. It's going to be a two-parter because we're going to take one part and talk about your art and what you're doing, what you've done, who you are, what the, what the meaning of life is, <laughs> yeah. all of those. <laughs> the answer is art. Art. <laughs> art is the meaning of life. It's supposed to say 42. Oh, right? the type of guide to the galaxy, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Um, but yeah, so we're joined with Darcy. And then the second part, we're going to talk about CASA, which you are the curator and gallery services, I think it's gallery called. Gallery services manager and curator, yes. Yeah. So then we'll talk about that and learn a bit about our community art center sure. and what's going on there. So just to get a bit, bit of background on you, okay. where were you born and did you know you were always going to be an artist? <laughs> I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Yeah. Uh, grew up most of my life in the central interior of BC in Prince George. Yeah. And uh, I drew when I was like a child. Yeah. But I kind of gave it up through my teenage years. I uh, was more interested in literature and writing. So I wrote poetry, short stories. So still an artist. Uh, yeah, yeah. A li I guess a literary artist. Yeah. And uh, I actually uh, pursued a literature degree at uh, in a post-secondary level. Dropped out in my final year, so didn't get my certification. <laughs> I thought I'd rather go explore the world of... Uh, Partying, I did partying and drugs <laughs> okay, <laughs> would be a say, lot more interesting. I did the exact same thing, but I didn't. But I went through and was doing my um, English degree. And I thought, well, I'll do my English degree and then I'll teach. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I didn't like kids that much. <laughs> so so um, decided. And then, so I was just going to finish up my English degree. And then I took a art course and it was like, here are me people, I must go. Yeah. And same thing, left it and it was like, well, no, but I have to do it now. <laughs> I, but. like art, visual arts hadn't even crossed my mind until I was in my early 20s. And I was kind of in that uh, indeterminate limbo state of like your early 20s. Yeah. And I was still interested in literature and there was a documentary coming on on William Blake. Oh. Who I'd always liked as a uh, a poet. Poet, yeah. His literary output, and I'm like, I'm going to watch this, but w it was about his drawing and painting. Oh, and I didn't even know he drew and painted. A amazing, illuminated uh, manuscripts oh. and a watercolorist and a gouache painter. And I saw this, and I'm like, oh my god, I want to do this. Right. So I went out the next day to the doll. I didn't know where to start. Went to the dollar <laughs> store, grabbed some dollar store paints and some uh, poster board, and yeah started doing it and never looked back. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, William Blake. <laughs> Interesting fellow. <laughs> yeah. So so then you knew you wanted to start art and you're in your late teens? Uh, early 20s. Early 20s. Yeah. So when, what did you do then? Did you go to? I tried, I, uh, I was living with uh, uh, my uncle at that point and he let me set up a studio in his basement oh, so cool. i was just self-taught and doing it getting books out reading magazines yeah and it, like like i'm just not developing. just passionate about it yeah yeah and i, I needed i wanted some real skill sets like i couldn't yeah. there was a point i couldn't push past right and i thought well i need to go to uh, post-secondary and learn these skills yeah which you never end up really learning <laughs> You have to still you teach yourself. You learn a lot of other stuff, but you're right. Yeah, not, you learn how to think, but not necessarily. Exactly. I wanted the magic formula that could yeah. teach me how to paint. Yeah, and, that's and exactly that, what I thought too, that you would go and you'd get these skills. And like you say, really, you get to learn how to critically think. Right. And, yeah. and evaluate your own work and decide what interests you. And it's funny if you look back even to the idea that 
you go to school to be an artist is a fairly recent conceit. Yeah. Historically, like if you were Monet or Pizarro, you bought your paints and you went out and painted and in the through the process you learned how to do it. Oh, okay. Like you'd maybe go to these informal academies and sit down with your friends, but it wasn't institutional in the same way we understand it. That's actually really recent. Oh, okay. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm going on a tangent. No, no, that's okay. It's cool to know that because I, you know, I mean, when we think about literature and philosophy and all of those that are ancient um, yeah. and have been studied, right, well known that it's it's kind of surprising that art itself hasn't been taught as much as I thought maybe it would Yeah, have. there was a time when it was like in a guild structure, so you would become right. an apprentice and learn that way, but... Uh, modern art as we understand it yeah I'd say probably the 50s do you think they had like formulas for all of like when you're mixing the egg paints and like stuff like that like back in the day yeah yeah and I think they were using mercury oh yeah closely guarded (laughs) secrets right yeah you had to learn your guild handshakes to show that you actually knew how to mix your viridian green or whatever yeah I can't imagine we're so lucky now really yeah it's pour out of a tube yeah, democratized, but also some sort of commodity fetishism where I don't even know where my paint comes from, how it's made, anything, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I met you at the University of Lethbridge. That's I right. think you were just like on your way out when I was coming in or close to that, right? Yes. Because I remember thinking you were like the art star. You guys, oh. you're that little group. It was like, wow. <laughs> Well, and I remember too, you were, do- and I see one of them up there, you were oh. doing uh, calligraphs of uh, women's unmentionables. Yes, <laughs> I was. Like corsets and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, some nylons and stuff like that yeah. too. But that's when you were doing, I remember actually um, when we did critique or whatever, and yours were of, um, um, or a lot of them were not, oh my goodness, where there was the big war. Not Gandhi. That's the only name that's coming to oh, me. Oh, the, the invasion of Afghanistan? Yeah. No, no. There w- wasn't there one about, you know, the hotel. It's in Africa. It's a country. Okay, never mind. No, you're right. I did a whole lot of architecture. Yeah, but it was also about what had gone on. Oh, yes. I was at, uh, at that point. I was interested in, in architecture that's built for a specific purpose that gets inverted. So schools that turn into detention camps. Right, okay, um, yeah. Churches that turn into places where there's massacres. Yes. Uh, Red Cross, all these things, yeah. So it would yeah. be probably one of those that was my in my last year. Yeah, so while I was doing the lingerie and I look at that, I was like, oh. <laughs> His has all kinds of meaning behind it. It's so political. Yeah, uh, but, course, so, but yours had also a social currency, right? Yeah. That, yeah, and it was And I would look at the same too. way and be like, oh, I'm just doing this moody <laughs> stuff. And she's doing stuff that has some social content and currency. Oh, well, that's cool to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you left, could you stayed in Lethbridge when you were done university, right? You've stayed here. Yeah. yeah. I could never achieve the, uh, the escape, financial escape velocity with my student loans <laughs> to get out. And also, I grew to really love Lethbridge. Yeah. I really yeah. like it here. We're really lucky because it's, it's quite the arty city, yeah. especially for the size that we are. 
I remember and reading in a, a Canadian art magazine article, maybe around 2011. Yeah. And uh, they, they didn't say it facetiously or glibly, but they're like, Lethbridge has more artists per capita than probably any other city in Canada. Oh, really? And I kind of believe it. Like, yeah. Think about the, we have CASA, the Southern Alberta Art Gallery, Trianon, the Penny Building. Yeah. Uh, little cafes that are showing art yeah. and that's just the visual and side. then of course our university the university yeah. gallery yeah and there's all sorts of performance venues so there's so many artists here it's yeah and there's a couple of collectives I can't think of any of them right now but there's a couple of collectives that are doing neat little things yeah yeah and have been many that have flared up and uh, kind of snuffed out over time too so it's really a really fertile place to be an artist. Well, and I think one of the nice things about it is everyone's encouraging to each other, right? Yeah. I don't think I ever felt um, or came across something that was, I felt like I wasn't welcome within within that. So I think we're, we're pretty good at that, of uh, trying to encourage our up-and-comings. I think so, and I think our, our, our small size helps that. You know? Yeah, yeah. So when did you, you were at okay i know you're at casa now but before that you were at I, all of a sudden i can't think of the name uh, the bowman art center bowman art center boy i'm having a day today i can't think of any uh, that's all right. or what it's friday <laughs> that's right it is um but yeah and how did you get started there just kind of because uh, it was a the bowman was a great little tiny arts not tiny but small art space that contains so many different things right guilds and classes and yep. community gallery space rentable space it was basically casa on a small scale right so when they built casa it was built to um kind of take its place like right with room to grow but as soon as we moved in there we were already at capacity yeah because we'd been asking for casa for 20 years I'm I can't believe we got it and so happy that we have it yeah we're so lucky we had at that point we had the luxury of a, a really visionary city council and I don't think we've had one since and Casa wouldn't have been built now not yeah. a chance yeah which is probably what's happening with our other the our performing, performing arts center arts and center yeah although who knows in our new council maybe that stuff like that yeah. could happen you never know <laughs> um, so one thing I remember um, someone telling me, if you're going to get a job at like an art gallery doing that, you shouldn't do that if you're an artist because you'll never keep up your practice. And you're pretty much exactly the opposite of that. <laughs> You've stayed in, in um, sort of the administrative part of the arts, but right. I've always seen you creating art all the way through that and continue to. Yeah, I've always had an active studio practice. The only thing that it's maybe been an impediment is uh, the business side of it. Yeah. That uh, I probably haven't marketed myself the way for I might have work. for my own work. The way I, I might have had I not spent all day doing it for somebody else, other artists, right? Yeah. Which I really love to do, but yeah, I'm really one dimensional. Like as a human being, what do you mean one dimensional? It, it's all art. Like I've got, excuse me being so crass, but I got just like a boner for art. <laughs> I make it, I think about it, I read about it, I work in the field. Yeah. When I go to a new city, I drag my wife to all the galleries yeah. until her feet get sore. I, <laughs> I just, it's kind of a totalizing expression of, of my life. And when do you think that happened? Uh, 
I think probably when I started, just when I was young at that kind of pivotal, pivotal point. Yeah. And I just started when reading. When you were sort of in that basement Yeah, space. and I just realized how important it was culturally and historically and socially and personally, mm-hmm. and just how it wraps its tendrils into every facet of our life and in all cultures throughout history. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And your work does is still really tied to what you're reading and what you're thinking that way, right? Like it seems to me that you must still read a lot and yeah. that that's still affecting what you're doing. Yeah, there's always kind of perennial threads that run through my work that in fact my mom gave me a bunch of old journals that I'd written in elementary oh, cool. school and it I I still have the same themes and preoccupations. <laughs> I really haven't grown up much beyond that. I've maybe increased the range of what I can read, but my interests are still are, kind of the same. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. You gotta love mums who save that stuff and give it to you when oh, you're yeah, adults. Oh yeah, that's the big stack of things. It was great. <laughs> so one of the sort of one of the big things that I kind of noticed after university was all your Norse paintings. Am I saying it right? Yep. Norse, right? Um, can you maybe talk about those a little bit and what attracted you to that? Yeah, I had spent a long time wondering what I was going to do kind of after art school and I did a small one-off projects and busied myself with the, the Potemkin Collective and other things. And I was really w- looking for some sort of symbol that uh, or leitmotif that I could use for a series of works. And I tried things, discarded things, experimented, and I stumbled upon the uh, myth of the Nagelfar, which was a uh, mythological ship from Norse mythology. Yeah. And it was believed that um, kind of in the underworld there was a ship being prepared from the fingernails and the toenails of the of the dead. I read that. Yeah. And when there was enough wickedness done in the world, there'd be enough material to set the ship a sail and bring about Ragnarok, or which is the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and I liked it, but not as a as an illustration of mythology, but as an allegory for the individual, right? And the things we do in the world, and the things we leave in our wake, and the meaning we try to scratch out with our little fingernails. And is that when you were looking for fingernails? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't I remember that some fingernails I, and toenails? Or you bots? I don't I know. Lo- I was. I had people sending. <laughs> Friends and relatives and well-wishers sending in toenails oh, from, from all over. And I, and I would add did them. Did you in. grind them down or you just... I would embed them. In, oh. Because I would make my paintings with the real textural materials like dirts and resins and acrylic. And buried in a lot of those paintings, you can, if you touch if them, you, you can feel pokey fingernails. <laughs> I even sent out a global call for uh, human fingernails and I got some really... Really? Strange and uh, <laughs> troubled individuals contacting me. Oh. And actually really sad. There was uh, one old fellow from Italy that had been collecting women's fingernails for most of his life. Wow. And uh, As like a fetish? As a, as, a, as a fetish. Yeah. And so he would uh, pay women to grow them out. And the fetish, he would clip, clip, clip them, them and, and save them. Huh. And, and talking to him, he had this really sad story, but when he was a little boy and he would hide pictures 
of uh, women's hands from magazine catalogs under his bed oh. and the horror <laughs> that his like mother would find these and know that he was some sort of monstrous deviant yeah and at the end he was approaching the end of his life and he had this collection and he didn't want his children to have to find it or dispose of it so he was looking he was going to sell it to me and so would he have given it to you or he wanted to sell it to you? Oh, it was too valuable. He wanted to sell it. I might have All bought right. it too, but a lot of them had nail polish on them and I liked liked my fingernails just bare. <laughs> oh, natural. Yeah, oh, natural. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think the, the polish, well, no, it does have a very fetish aspect to it. So speaking of these materials that you used to use to like build up your paintings, mm -hmm. how, what was the stability of your paintings just from a, an interest like in terms of their material stability? Yeah, their... like, you know, I mean, if you're adding soil, I've just never done it before. So if you're adding soil and, and all these different things into your paint, do they? Um, they have a longevity. How long? I don't know, but they're still, yeah. they're still stable. They look, yeah, they look really stable. I, it was almost like an alchemical laboratory in my studio. Like I had a, a quite elaborate process of gathering specific sorts of soils with high silica contexts content oh. sifting them emulsifying them in clear acrylic and almost traveling them on oh okay so you're them. not just kind of yeah oh okay so they yeah they're fairly stable and rust rust and metal and resins. yeah so obviously they're not gonna I don't care if my work lasts a million years <laughs> I, I don't really care if it lasts tomorrow sometimes yeah you know, but yeah that's not necessary. They're stable for the they're stable for the people that bought them. <laughs> They'll be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> so your work goes from from painting, writing, um, your performance is a really big one and one that you've have you finished up now and is it <laughs> sorry, I'll finish sentence pretty soon, I swear. <laughs> um, so you're very multidisciplinary. Maybe we can just go there. So sure. when you're choosing something, are you choosing the subject matter first or how you're going to... Do you say, I want to make a painting and then you decide what you want to do? Or do you decide, I really want to talk about... No, it goes from... I would say it from... Uh... Of course. Subject to predicate, where I think a lot of contemporary wants you to go from predicate to subject. Right. Come up with your idea, and then you generate the work. Yeah. And I've I've always found that a bit stifling for me personally, um, because there's that initial point of creativity and play that makes it so satisfying to do, and then you reflect on obviously the themes and your areas of research and how it might be relevant. Um, so it's always just things that are resonant with me that I. I need to get down yeah and I work really serially so I work on bodies of work kind of with thematic uh, subjects or motifs that I sometimes work on for years and years right like the ships I worked on for probably five or six years um, how did you know you're finished when I looked up and I'm like, I was working on one, I'm like, I don't, I just can't paint another <laughs> one of these boats. <laughs> I just can't do it. Yeah, yeah. And then I threw it aside and yeah. moved on to something else. Well, I don't think you can count it throwing aside when you've done five years worth of work. That's pretty damn good, eh? Yeah. <laughs> and I, it runs almost in a cycle. You have this excitement of generating the work and then experimenting and seeing how many ways you can interpret the subject and the motifs to this sense of like 
kind of banality and boredom about what you're doing to the sense of disgust <laughs> that you've done so many and don't want to see another one again? Well, maybe going to performance, you were a magician. Maybe you still are a magician. Mm -hmm. Maybe once you are your whole life, once you become a magician. Yeah. Once a magician, always, <laughs> always a magician. Always a magician. Um, with a collective. Did you call yourselves a collective or a troupe? Or a... Um, yeah, we were a collective. Yeah. It was a medium, which stood for metaphysical explorations, divinations, and investigations, utilizing magic. <laughs> yeah. But medium, the medium was the message. Yeah. yeah. And you did magic is what your part in the mediums was, wasn't it? Yeah. So we had a, a there was, originally was a three of us and then it moved on to four and we all had these, um, sideshow like tents that we would set up in galleries and uh, other spaces and offer s psychic services mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. and uh, for me I'm an absolute skeptic when it comes to that even yeah. though I've read and researched a lot about it and so I would uh, you still are I still yeah. I still am yeah and I would reproduce a lot of the effects of, of a psychic using sleight of hand, um, trickery, illusion to create this kind of otherworldly experience. Right. Always knowing full well that what I was doing was Slight spurious hand. and, yeah. uh, you know, carnivalesque. Yeah. yeah. And then we had a uh, uh, charlatan. Yeah. Who kind of bridged the line. She was kind of a believer, but she used uh, a bit of subterfuge to to get her effects to work. And then we had Madame Simona, who legitimately kind of believed in yeah. in that sort of phenomenon. Yeah. And then we had the professor who was a kind of built these apparatuses. Who was the, the professor? That was Rick Gillis. Oh. And he, he joined in kind of oh. probably the last half of when we were doing medium. Oh, okay. Yeah, he'd be a great addition to that. But it was a, it was a lot of fun. We, we did some pretty prestigious ones. We did... Uh, Nuit Blanche in Calgary in oh. 2014. Yeah. Which there was like 15,000 people on, is it Olympic Plaza downtown? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really? Just, oh man, we had people lining up to come see our event. It was like, I was afraid there was going to be a riot and my wife Alexis went and like got barricades and kind of <laughs> was kind of guiding people through. Yeah, it was just... That's so her. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, great. that's crazy. Because we could only do one person right. or two at yeah. a time. Yeah. And you come into this closed tent that's decorated with uh, all sorts of... So people can't even see what you're doing that are lining up. Not really. Mine used a lot of flashes of fire so people could see <laughs> something happening in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we did the Works Festival. and. Oh, uh, yeah. Did some stuff at E-Media and Mountain Standard Time and guys got around yeah so we did performance and then we were also object makers we would do collaborative drawings and uh, make sculptures as medium as medium oh. all on that kind of theme of exploring uh, that those kind of liminal states of belief right right and you mentioned just quickly the Potemkin and maybe we can just talk about that too because that was a yeah. pretty um, amazing collective that went through a few different artists even didn't it like groups of artists yeah, uh, originally it was uh, founded by Robin Moody, and it was a student gallery that was housed at the uh, in the Oliver Building. Right. 
because I remember exhibiting in there or not exhibiting but going and seeing exhibits when I was a student yeah me too and so when I got a studio after art school yeah and it had become dormant at that point yeah and uh, Robert Bechtel who was uh, part of the original oh we started talking about having some more shows and it just kind of grew into I guess the Potemkin Collective or Potemkin 2.0 and we started yeah. actually um, occupying spaces that were outside of the Oliver building and having these large thematic community exhibitions that would invite lots of participants and participation. It was, it was great. Yeah. It was really satisfying. Um, and there still is the one where there's still Potemkin T-O-O on 6th Street there. I just walked by it's and they just, changed the sign. So oh, it's did they something change else it now? Because it was like that for years mm -hmm. and years. Still had the, the sign up as a 2-0-0. But um, uh, talk about, I guess we were talking in your, um, about assemblages, like in your paintings where you put everything on. Do you do that in other forms too? Like your printmaking? Are you, are you mostly using woodblock? What? Like, are assemblages important to you? Or just whatever works? I would say the latter, whatever works, which yeah. oftentimes becomes assemblage. Yeah. And I start aggregating my surfaces with gluing, gluing pieces of clay or whatever to paper or... Yeah. Yeah, just to, uh, allow it to form quite naturally and organically. So well, I and I seem I, to remember text on quite a few of your different quite a bit of text different yes. works. Yeah, yeah. The ones I've been kind of laboring over for the last couple years are fairly traditional two-dimensional charcoal drawings. Right. I noticed you were starting that. Kind of ana anatomical, or based on anatomical drawings. Are they you? Yeah, because they're not they're not anatomical, they're uh, anatomies of the philosophical body. Oh. So, you know, ideas and epistemologies and of those sorts of things. Of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, Mr. Is it No One or Noon? Mr. You're, no One. Mr. No One, that's what I thought. I thought I better double check. Um, is a film that's completed. Night it looks walking, like, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit of, about that? Yeah. Um, Has it been released yet? It hasn't. We're uh, Of course, with everything happening, right? It was a collaborative exercise between myself and three other really talented artists, a, a sound artist and two filmmakers. Oh. Um, Brad Gorick, J.P. Marchant, uh, Clayton Smith, and myself. Okay. Yeah, it's really well done. Yeah, those, they're great. Yeah, super. So I kind of did the, I wrote the, the script and uh, the general story outline. And, and you're the star. Starred in it and uh, yeah, they did the lighting, the cinematography, the editing, and then Clayton did the sound. Yeah, I was, I was really happy with why how it, it was, out. Yeah, so great. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's very professional, it's very compelling. And when you see professional lighting and videographers, boy, you really appreciate it, don't you? Oh yeah. Because yeah. you can really tell yours doesn't, yeah. And coming from like a, a visual arts background, so much video art is poorly produced, right? Yes, like, totally. It, it doesn't... You I've don't, done you know, tons of poorly you know, yeah, produced. Yeah, same, same here. You don't need <laughs> yeah. to, you just need to whip out a little camera and, and yeah. do it, right? But yeah. when you're working with people whose craft is in film, yeah. that takes it in a whole other direction, which is really satisfying but also really 
frustrating because the the spontaneity and yeah. the immediacy that you get as a yeah. visual artist doing that you don't get like it it can take three hours to set up all your things and get 15 seconds of footage it's yeah. just yeah so labor intensive yeah it looks good though i hope it gets released soon thank you yeah are they still doing film festivals they are so yeah. we're getting it out to a few of those yeah now that started did it start off um mr no one is walks through the streets right right um sort of taking in the streets did you you started doing that didn't you before you wrote your script wasn't that just a practice you had or definitely that that kind of idea of the flaneur um alexis my wife had gone up to work um up north for a year yeah and i was kind of in this indeterminate fuge state yeah. and uh when all the hysteria and uh, histrionics and hyperbole around the uh, supervised consumption site started, yeah, by people that never come downtown, mm -hmm. and on both sides of the debate, pro yeah. and con, uh, making these proclamations and pontificating about it's not safe, it is safe, and especially the people that were like, it's not safe downtown. I'm like, yeah. I don't believe that. So I, it started as primarily an exercise to prove those people wrong. Yeah. So I started. Uh, nightly hour and a half long walks that would take me through Galt Gardens past the consumption site and in all these areas that people say are, um, are are dangerous or unsafe yeah and it morphed into just this kind of social being a social ecologist and uh, um, times of introspection and reflection and that's something that I still do. I went out last night. You so, do, hey? Yeah. And what did you find? Did you find that it, did you feel like it was dangerous? Did you notice a shift? Did you? I'd, I'd say if there's one overwhelming emotion that I, I experienced was probably sadness. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'd, I've never ran into any situation where I felt unsafe. Arguably, I'm a, I'm a tall man, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's it. The, yeah. These people downtown are the vulnerable population are in the throes of an addiction. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be mm -hmm. villains. It's... Yeah. I've also had some great interactions and some surreal interactions. <laughs> and I used to journal it quite heavily and uh, post them on social media. Though yeah. someone once accused me of um, maybe romanticizing the experience of those people on the streets, and I was like, fair criticism. Mm -hmm. So I no longer publicly put that stuff up. Hmm. But the film itself kind of, even though it deviates from that, it has some of those themes definitely of mm -hmm. uh, what a, like a white settler observer yeah. Yeah. might see or, or think about as he experiences that. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a kind of a existential horror movie, I think. It actually, that's a really good description because yeah. it has watching it. It has such a night. Um, yeah, it has. You're kind of just waiting for the yeah. horror to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But and maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> um, watch for the film. Yeah, watch for the film, and it's called Night Walking. Night Walking. So there you go. We'll we'll make sure we. Uh, well, I don't know. Is the link to the film yet? Is that 
something you're showing people or it's when it'll be released? Yeah, there's some uh, festivals that want to have uh, rights of first screening. So yeah. we can't kind of publicly put it out there until we've kind of exhausted looking for festival venues to screen it. Yeah, well, I'm excited for you guys. Thank you. Um, well, I wonder if now we should take a break and then we'll talk about CASA. Sure. If that's cool with you. You betcha. All right.